Well, I'm here to remind you of the mess you left when you went away. <laughs> a little Alanis. I like it. A little Alanis set start off the day, which is great. Welcome to the show, Whitney. Thanks, Manny. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's so good, good to have you on the show. We're going to have a very interesting conversation about what you guys are doing out in California there. And uh, I'd love, I'm sure that we'll get to it, but you guys are probably planning on uh, expanding it outside of the state and going into other states. At some point, we can actually talk about that and bone to pick, though, because I don't know that you have to expand geographically. As a oh, first step. okay, that's good. You're getting way ahead of us, sir. So, <laughs> so let me just do a quick shout out. I'm wearing uh, John McNeil McNeil Constructions hoodie uh, on today's show, and so we've got Whitney Hill from Snap ADU. It's www.snapadu.com, and you can reach her at Whitney at snapadu.com, and you can find them all over social. Instagram is snap.adu. They have a YouTube channel, Facebook, and you can also find them on. LinkedIn. So, uh, you want to begin with the bone? Sure. Let's okay. begin with it. Sure. Um, I actually have several though, Manny. So you cut me off when we're <laughs> done with bones. Throw as many bones as you want in the air. It's totally fine. Everyone's <laughs> listening. Let's talk about the geographic expansion. Cause I get asked that, um, all the time as a business owner, what's next for snap ADU? Where are you going to expand? Um, do you serve this area? And I think part of our success has been, has been, and being very specialized both in what we do as far as the type of builds that we do, which is just detached new construction and also where we do it, which is just greater San Diego by specializing in that way, we've been able to become the true experts in the 15 municipalities or so that we serve within San Diego. So we're actually planning for the next several years to continue to grow from that base. There's so much more runway here in San Diego while we're refining our processes and really figuring out exactly what it is that we would go expand with if we were to go to a different market. As you know, the subcontractors are so difficult to nail down anyway. Um, doing that in a different market would require um, a very uh, organized playbook to figure out exactly how to get that off the ground. And we feel like we need some more time to refine that here locally first. So was it, I mean, be, be, uh, before anybody kind of gets an idea, like uh, we're talking about smaller dwellings, granny suites, um, I guess uh, auxiliary kind of uh, office space kind of things you can park on different pro on your own property, different properties. Uh, but I mean, I guess what would be the maximum square footage and the minimum square footage that you guys are building? Sure. Um, at a state level, you can build up to a 1200 square foot ADU. Okay. There are actually a couple of cities that have gone larger. One in our area lets you build up to 1500 square feet. And then, you know, smallest we build is, you know, 450 square feet or so, a very little one bedroom. Um, the minimum size, though, for an ADU is 150 square feet. So some companies do, you know, small additions or conversions of that size, but we're operating in the larger space. Um, we really specialize in the detached new construction space and we're most competitive when they're at least a two-bedroom unit of about 750 square feet or more so i mean I, I only asked about the geographic side of things because once we're living in a digital age so pretty much someone halfway around the world can find you guys and go well i want that but you guys are in san diego so what's the next step or is someone going to copy that and and do it on their country and their their areas or whatever but i guess it kind of makes sense but you're totally right that format, that model, you guys have perfected it in, I mean, you've been around for how long now? Just under two years or no, almost three years now. Going on three at three. Snap ADU and my business partner who runs our production side was um, operating as more construction for about a decade. Um, so we pivoted the core of his business to become Snap ADU. Got it. So you guys have, have 
I guess I would say it's a it's a well oiled machine right now, because in one year We're you guys are, there. yeah you get totally getting there. I mean I'm I'm very impressed with what you guys are building, but in one year you guys are pulling off sixty units in one year. Yeah. So I guess you've got the crews, the planning, the design, the, the whole structure. It's all kind of it's really the clients reach out to you, you start the ball rolling from what they're liking, how big they want to build, the finishing, all that other stuff. And then it just goes. It's a green light at that point. Exactly. And we found over time that by bringing design and permitting in-house also, we didn't start that way. We started out just building um, from plans and or working with architects. We found though that by having all that in-house, we're able to feedback our learnings much more quickly and reliably. So now our plan sets are just crystal clear. We have all of the you know, watch outs accounted for in there. We're learning from every build we do so that we don't make the same mistakes twice. And at this point, when we do try to bid out plans, we'll do once in a blue moon. Um, it's difficult because <laughs> it's not to our standards and, you know, our team isn't set up to accommodate that. So exactly like you're saying, once the client walks in the door, um, we, we have this conveyor belt. We know exactly what that process is like to get them through the you know design permit and build process. So what are clients asking for? Or what, what is the magic number? I know that you've given us a range of different sizes that you're building, but what exactly mm -hmm. are they asking for? What's the market looking for by you guys? Sure. There's probably two main types of clients. The ones that want to build an ADU for a family member, whether that's an adult child who can't afford the housing market out here, or maybe an aging parent who's ready to downsize and also wants to be close by for grandchildren, that sort of thing. The other type of person building an ADU um, might be an investor. And whether that's you know someone who already has a small portfolio of single and multifamily properties, or someone who's just starting to think about this for the first time, and their very first rental property is going to be on their own um, you know, existing single family home um, lot. So, so it's really investors or homeowners we're looking at. And what they're looking for um, is typically to get the most um, bang for their buck. You know, they're going to do this once in a lot of the cases with the family. And so they're looking to have a great solution that's going to grow with their needs over time. Maybe they're going to originally build it for, for mom, but they know within, you know, 10 years that that's going to transition to a rental. So a lot of times they're building them with a couple of um, ideas in mind, or maybe the, the inverse, they're going to rent it until mom's ready to come move. And they're almost trying to lure her. <laughs> if you build it, they will come sort of a thing. So a lot of times we are designing these with, with both um, use cases in mind. Um, and then for the investor side, a lot of times they're trying to um, get you know, the smallest unit they can with still having two bedrooms or the smallest unit they can with three bedrooms. So trying to hit some kind of a metric that they know will work with the rest of their portfolio and in that geography. I mean, uh, Whitney, I'm very impressed that you guys have grown so quickly in such a short amount of time, but the qualities behind there, but also the ideas behind there. This is basically going to be the future. I mean, with I don't see, and I've had lots of real estate agents on the show, and we've spoken to some government people as well too. I don't see this need for housing dropping anytime soon, dramatically, price-wise. So all people can really afford are these kinds of structures or splitting. That's what we have going on here as well too. We've got a lot of splitting. You're turning single-family dwellings into triplexes because of these reasons, where you can live on one floor, rent out the other floors, make some income, and survive. So. I can only imagine in the next 10 years that this is going to be such a norm. Like it's just going to explode all over the place. We completely agree with you. Um, and of course we're most first in what's happening here in California. Um, but you know, I have my Google alerts going off on ADUs across the country and you're seeing this become a talking point all over. And we've also had 
uh, this year um, a White House press conference on accessory dwelling units and how there are you know, a new frontier that we can use to address housing shortages. Also how they're expanding funding options and working on solutions for that because that's been a big barrier is how to fund these. So I agree with you, Manny. It's, a, it's, it's meeting a real need. And I think the pushback that ADUs get is often like, oh, you're hurting the character of the neighborhood. Or, this isn't what we signed up for sort of a thing. Um, in a lot of cases though, the ADUs are limited by the underlying zoning anyway on floor area ratios and all those coverage requirements. So where they are being developed, it in, in a sense was almost um, underutilized to begin with. Um, and like I mentioned, a lot of our clients are truly building this for the family members. So yes. these are, you know, integrated with the rest of the property and, you know, built to fit with the neighborhood. Uh, over here on our end, I find that all of our, uh, these other units that are being attached or not attached or turned into laneway suites or things like that, I'm finding that they're more expensive to build than the actual structure itself. If you were to build this single, is that the same case with you guys there? But I'm, I don't think it is. I think you guys are building it for a little bit less than what it would cost normally to build a house. Well, it depends on how we're thinking about it. If you're um, talking cost per square foot, these are astronomically expensive okay. <laughs> for the little units. I mean, you can crack 500, 550 a square foot for a 450 square foot unit. Okay. The bigger you get, it's going to look more like cr constructing a primary residence. So for our larger units, the cost is more like 300 a square foot, which is pretty close just building a single family. Um, what really makes a difference, I could be two things. As far as driving up the cost for the ADUs, you're spreading over, you're spreading those high fixed costs across much smaller footprint so you're still having to do the same set of plans site work is pretty similar um, you have um, kind of a base level of kitchen and bath that you have to have in there whether it's a tiny one bedroom or a large three-bedroom house so of course the smaller the unit the higher the cost per square foot um, on the flip side what's um, helpful is that a lot of the fees have been waived for an adu so um, you were talking about lot splits being something yeah. that's happening in toronto people are starting to think about that here as well we had um, a, a piece of a piece of legislation passed called SB9 that allows um, folks to, ministerial, to ministerially split their lots here as well. So a lot of people are weighing that option of splitting their lot and building another primary residence versus just building an ADU. You can't sell the ADU separately from the primary home versus if you split it, you can sell these two lots separately. It's a big difference. But when you're thinking about the actual construction cost, the two big drivers for the new primary home would be the fees. We're talking tens of thousands more for a new primary home versus versus an ADU, even of the same height, same size, like a 1200 square foot ADU versus a 1200 square foot new primary residence, you're gonna be talking about 40, $50,000 more in permits alone. The other thing you're gonna face is right of way work for those improvements to have things like a driveway, um, upsizing the utilities, that kind of thing, it'll be another 20, 30, $40,000. So just, you know, looking at apples to apples for the same building, if you're just building it as an ADU, it's much cheaper than building a new primary home. It's interesting that you brought up that the, now you could sever it and sell it separately. We haven't done that yet. I'm sure that's going to get tabled eventually. Um, my question has always been the units that are being built right now here in our area, they're actually still tying into the main uh, utility lines. So outside of the hydro, hydro's being split as, as a meter base, but the gas is still connected on the same line and the, the actual sanitary is connected on the same line. Are you guys already severing those utilities as well too because of that resale factor that they just passed recently? 
The resale factor only comes in for the lot splits. So okay. we aren't actually doing that kind of work. We're just doing the ADUs that you can um, attach behind the curb like you're describing. Sometimes we'll come across um, you know, a massively undersized water line that will have to be upsized. But in most cases, we're able to tie into the existing lateral. Okay. All right. I was just curious about that because, I mean, I, I totally see this being massive. This is going to be the wave of the future. Everyone's going to be looking at these as options. I just I hope that a lot of great builders get on board like yourselves where we st we continue building well we build really well so then we don't start um i guess cutting all these corners just to get these units out there and then things start to fall apart after a decade or two and then what happens it just starts to become uh, a nightmare at that point that's exactly it and we see ourselves as a production builder focused on infill development um the sites are constrained and we're having to deal with different site work each time but the rest of what we're doing is pretty similar to what a track home builder would do yeah you know we have a bunch of standard plans you can pick from you can modify them but we try to give people you know those options to get to uh, build faster um and then we're replicating the same um construction process over and over again versus like you're mentioning um folks that aren't specialized in ADUs have not been able to build that kind of repeatable process. And so they maybe have not found all those pitfalls yet. What that means for us then though, is that most of the other folks operating in the space have not done this as many times as we have. So we'll yeah. be bidding against folks who are uh, either unknowingly or knowingly <laughs> cutting corners, which makes our bid look much, much higher, which we've just come you know, to deal with. And our whole mantra is transparency from the first call. So when we work through a proposal process, we're putting the full loaded development cost, including all those stumbling blocks of like needing to upgrade your electrical panel because it's undersized. Um, additional site work because um, you're going to have to deal with the two foot building corner differential. I mean, we're looking at all of that from day one versus change ordering it down the road. Um, the other thing we're finding is that even within the cities, um, we're finding that we know the building code in and out at a, at a more consistent level than the plan checkers might. And this is mainly because of staffing shortages in the cities. Some of those departments are down 20 or 30% in just their number of employees in the department. We're seeing huge queue times on plans, but we're also seeing things come out inconsistently. So we're seeing plans approved, again, back to the ones that we haven't done, right? I'll yeah. see plans come through from another architect that have glaringly obvious problems that we know will be caught by the inspector. The plan checker didn't catch it and they have a stamp set of plans. So now we're faced with telling this client, we know you have this approval from the city, but believe us, this is going to get caught in inspection. So that's a high hurdle. <laughs> it's a lot of trust with your clients, right? So we're dealing with that a lot where, again, if you specialize, you're seeing these same problems over and over again. And even in the cases of the city, sometimes we're knowing more what it's going to look like than even perhaps that younger plan checker did. It's great. I, I want to shift uh, gears a little bit to marketing because I know sure. that this must have been a little bit of a challenge. Um, and I'm very respectful of a lot of tradespeople and business owners in the construction industry that took a chance on something new when COVID yes. hit, right? And that's exactly yes. what you guys did. Outside of, you know, the factor of people couldn't really afford uh, a single family dwelling, you guys came in with a different apple, so to speak. How did you guys approach that marketing to kind of sell to the market? Mm-hmm. Um, well, for starters, so my partner, Mike Moore, was already trying to specialize in accessory dwelling units. So kudos to him because he was a mom and pop style operation with about six guys. Um, actually, they started out as a framing crew and you know, grew from there to be um, you know, just focused as the general contractor on remodels and that sort of thing. So he was looking to specialize in ADUs. Meanwhile, I was seeing the same thing and I didn't grow up in construction. Um, I'd actually been in corporate America for a decade and then pivoted to real estate investing led to fix and flips and then I kind of got more involved 
involved in, in residential construction from there. So I had also heard about ADUs and was thinking about how to get involved in this space. So um, stars kind of aligned and he and I met up um, to, to start Snap ADU. But to your question about marketing, um, Mike had already started to try to put it out there that he was an ADU specialist. And we really just built on that premise as we formed Snap. And we um, jettisoned all the other work that either one of us was bringing to the table. You know, I left behind the development stuff I was doing with my other business. He left behind the development work that he was doing with more construction. And we said, we are only doing ADUs. And very few were willing to do that. It's terrifying to turn away business in the yeah. beginning. Um, so that was step one, was really defining who we were. And then the next big step on marketing was making sure that people could find us. Um, fortunately, the barrier is not that high in construction. A lot of trades, a lot of general contractors have not put the, the word out there in an equivalent way to say as a tech company would with having a great website, great SEO um, and, and all that jazz. So we quickly started producing content as we learned ADUs. We would write a blog post about what we learned about the regulations or um, what the site work constraints were. We were doing that to collect it for our own team, but we decided let's put it out there. Um, let's put it out there for our clients too. And and very quickly, we started performing extremely well in organic search results on Google because we had the most content out there in this new space. Um, so I think those are the two big factors for us, specializing very concretely in ADUs and publishing as much information as we could as we learned about what the space was all about. I'd love, Whitney, if you can, just walk us through the process of I'm a new client, I come towards you guys, and then all of a sudden, how does that ball get rolling? Sure. You probably find us on Google, Googling ADU Builder or something like that. Um, you'd fill out a contact form with your information about your property address and what size of a unit you're thinking of building. And from there, uh, you're going to get a phone call or email from us to give you a ballpark idea of the price we're talking, just so that folks aren't shocked to, to hear that it's going to be, you know, $300,000 to do their one bedroom versus the $50,000 they thought they might be able to do it for. Um, so once that happens, we'd set up a, a Zoom consult where we actually pull up your property in our feasibility software that allows us to see all the topography of your lot married with the uh, parcel information with the zoning so we can see what the setbacks are for your ADU um, and also see all of our plans on your lot. So in that, in that um, actual Zoom consult, we would be playing around with floor plans, shifting things around until we kind of get what you want. Um, and in that call, we'd also um, ask information about um, your existing structure and your lot constraints. And that's all geared towards us filling out a series of about 50 different dropdowns in our backend system to create this proposal. Things about um, access, you know, are we gonna, is it a, you know, eight feet wide flat access we can take a bobcat through or is it four feet wide we're gonna have to hand carry. All those things are triggering costs and line items in the scope of the, of the work for the proposal. So clients get from us a very detailed proposal that says, here's what we think it's gonna cost. Do you wanna continue on to feasibility? During feasibility, we actually go to the site and map out the existing utilities. We draw the full site plan. We draw what we thought the client or what the client thought they wanted, um, make any adjustments that have to be made based on the site constraints and give them a final fixed price. So within four weeks of working with us, they have a commitment on a build price from us that's good for six months. We could talk about that too with inflation, what we yeah, have to do. Yeah, supply chain. Yeah, totally. Sure. Yeah. We had people nervous about not knowing how much their build was going to cost. So we've had to offer price locks to deal with that. So from there, once they approve their price and their feasibility report, we go to work producing the construction documents. We send that to the city. That whole process takes three to six months, depending on how bad the city is. <laughs> and from there we go to build it, um, three to four month build out. So all in, you're looking at like a 10 to 12 month process with us. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the supply chains because everybody around the whole world was having problems with supply chains and a lot of people here weren't even offering any price locking for more than a week or two at the most because of construction being a commodity, basically. Yes. So uh, how were you guys able to lock in? Uh, were you just dealing with the relationships with suppliers and just telling them, listen, we're committed to all these projects. We have to be committed to this price point. How did that all work for you guys? Yeah, We've been able to do that to some extent with asking for, you know, six month locks or three month locks from our vendors um, and the bigger houses can do that. Um, you know, things like our um, plumbing fixture supplier will do that for us, um, or maybe the larger electrical supplier will do that. Um, but in a lot of cases, they aren't. But we had to make a business decision to do that on our end. So we've had to increase prices such that we feel confident we'll still be OK with the, the movement that's going to happen and costs over that next six month period. Um, and also account for things like, you know, we expect the variances to be this number. We expect the warranty cost to be that number. So we have all of that baked in to whatever number we're committing to up front. So how have we been able to do that? It's really just been about getting clear um, on exactly what our costs are, buttoning up our estimation process, buttoning up our, our feedback loops in our project management software so we can closely track the job costs and variances of the different trades. But honestly, Manny, rather than like us pressuring our suppliers for the lock, it's been more about us kind of feeling confident in what we think the movement will be and pricing accordingly so that we can offer the price lock ourselves. That's very cool. Um, how luxurious can your units get? Or is it really up to the client at that point? It's definitely up to the client. And we have some clients that are going very high end. This is for their mother-in-law who might've lived in a $2 million house and is downsizing to this unit. So she wants it to be a real jewel box. And you'll see that with a beautiful custom kitchen or handmade tiles on the roof. Um, and in some cases we have to have these a bit more tricked out on the outside to, um, to work with the HOA. So HOAs can't straight up deny these. But um, they can still require that they match the character of the neighborhood. And again, we want them to. We don't want these to be sore thumbs. We want people to be happy to have them on their property. So, you know, we've had units um, for the project all in cost 550000 600000 for a 1,200 square foot house. So that's a very nice unit. <laughs> that's, that's reasonably priced in my opinion. But I guess, yeah, I mean, it, I guess to the, the, the medium, it's a nice unit. It's a very luxurious unit. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you're getting as far as uh, heated flooring, uh, heated towel warmers, you're getting into uh, marbles and granites of uh, countertops, you're getting into all those kinds of little details because of uh, you're offering that, you have that as an option. Yes, we actually have quartz countertops standard in all of our packages. The wow. investor clients want that anyway for the resiliency of it. And like we said, a lot of people are building this as an either or, so it has to be somewhat nice. You know, all wood construction, um, cabinetry, um, heated floors we haven't done yet. Um, all of ours is slab on grade. Um, so it's a little trickier to plan ahead for that. Um, that's a good one though. And as far as what upgrades to offer, we're kind of just scratching the surface of that. Like the last two and a half years has been really getting our basic, um, systems in place. And now that that's there, we can kind of have fun. We actually just got, um, a request for like this cute Victorian house that does have a pretty strict HOA. We're like, you know what, let's do that. It'll be fun to match the exterior of that one. Cause for a while that stuff wasn't fun. <laughs> that was just like another you know issue to deal with. But now that we have this base, um, really solid flow in place, we can add things on. So I'm going to add heated floors to our list of potential upgrades. Well, I, do, I know you guys are in, in, in the California area, but still, it's just a nice it's little perk, nice right? I, I know clients here that keep their heated floors on during the summer months. 
Sure. They just like yeah. that. Uh, I was going to ask you, um, cladding wise on the outside, I know that you, you talked about trying to match what's existing or trying to stay tr true to the heritage. Um, mm -hmm. But what did you guys start off with? Was it all kind of wood cladding or did you also offer brick cladding at that time or what's what's going on with the exterior face of it? Yeah, we have it pretty easy out here in San Diego. A lot of the areas have you know stucco as the exterior, so that's typical. Or just board and batten using hardy board is is really the the two main ones that we would go with. Adding stone veneer on maybe a chimney that's something we've done. Uh, we don't have a lot of brick out here. A little different um, look than say Toronto or Dallas. Um, but I would say that you know, higher end stucco is something that people are asking for too, like a Santa Barbara finer finish. Um, to kind of match the look at their primary home. Yep. And as we're finding ourselves building these larger units, we're having to accommodate more on the exteriors because it does mean that we're in some nicer neighborhoods. So we're starting to figure out how to best accommodate those higher end finishes. I want to talk about green building and what you guys are doing. But before I do that, let me do a little history and construction. Uh, I, I actually didn't know this. Uh, Angelina was kind enough to find this out. The difference between apartments and condos. I just assume that they're very similar, but they're not very similar to difference. Uh, apartments uh, are owned by a leasing company that leases out the units. Average of $700 cheaper. This is as of 2017. Uh, you have parking, gym, and sometimes some amenities like a pool. Older is less attractive. Locations owned by a professional organization. Very predictable. Expenses go through uh, their insurance. Condos owned by separate owners who may rent out units. Parking, gym, pool, all kinds of amenities. Uh, newer located downtown or or near large transport hubs owner by an individual who may be overprotective uh unpredictable may suddenly choose to sell the property reserve fund insurance may not cover expenses so that's the basic difference between i guess if you got an apartment you don't own it you got a condo you have you can own it and airbnb and stuff um whitney i want to ask you so are, are you getting clients asking you guys to be green i mean Creating smaller dwellings, first of all, is a step in the right direction of building green. I think people, for the most part, build way too much, like too big of a dwelling, way too big for the homes that we, or for the families that we do have. Um, so I love that you guys are, are tackling this, this smaller kind of units. Are the clients asking for this, for that green kind of, I feel good that we're uh, helping out things? You know, it's funny in California, the state has made sure that the baseline is already pretty green. So along with all those California requirements, these are already very efficient units. Uh, we also have to have solar um, installed on every new construction um, project out in California. So those are already some like baselines that are in place. We do sometimes have people coming to us asking for some kind of um, even more intense green features. Um, quick sidebar though, my, my partner, Mike, actually um, started out as a company called Responsible Construction. And his whole purpose was to be a green builder. You know, he, he was fresh out of college, like had this, you know, vision that he was going to, you know, really into that green space. And what he found was that people weren't willing to pay for it. Um, he, he couldn't make the money on it because they just weren't willing to pay what it would actually cost to add all of those features. Um, and I think I still see echoes of that. Like the folks who do come to us asking about like, oh, can we do this, that, and the other? Can I recycle the water? Can I do you know something innovative? Um, a lot of times those projects don't happen, at least not with us, because a lot of times they require much more planning and you're thinking through all the intricacies of, of how that would work. Um, and we just don't build a lot like that. Um, but that said, these are small units. So we're not dealing with the whole over, over building, like you mentioned, like these are right-sized. Um, it's not an extravagant amount of space. It has to be well planned out. So from that perspective, Perspective, I'd say these are you know greener than your average type of a build, but nothing crazy out of our way. 
beyond the building code. So I, I understand that California is such a strict state to build in uh, for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons that they've implemented certain things. But I've also heard from other contractors speaking to them on the show or off the show. Um, it, it is sometimes very difficult to run a business and be profitable with a lot of the restrictions in California. Are you guys feeling that same way? I think it, it definitely is a factor. Um, you know, fortunately, there are some tax credits that offset a bit of these added costs. So on you know the solar, you can get 30% of that cost back the, the year you install it. So that helps. Um, but for sure, people are being priced out of building an ADU. Um, over the last like six months, when we really saw the interest rates jump, um, I think we kind of had a shift in our clientele. Um, there were still a lot of folks who were trying to just piece together financing to get enough money to build that $300,000 kind of entry level size. Um, and those people have just sort of, you know, put their projects on pause. A lot of investors who were just bootstrapping the money together and, you know, had, had their lenders, like those sources are not viable. The numbers don't pencil anymore. So I think for sure we've seen a bit of a transition. So now the folks who are building with us are comfortable doing it with cash. Maybe they sold an asset, maybe mom sold her house. Um, so most of our deals don't have financing right now. So um, that probably does mean that a lot of pent up demand is sitting there waiting for financing to get better again so they can hop back in. Now, I love that you guys have a lot of employees. Like how many employees do you have going on right now? We have 16 uh, W-2 employees and okay. an army of independent contractors. <laughs> Got it. That's what I figured, right? So how do, how do you guys keep that machine going? You have the workforce. So it's really about you're preparing for all of these demands coming in. Yes, that's been the trickiest part of growing from small to kind of medium-sized business is growing your staff accordingly when it is still a relatively low number of, of builds a year. I mean, 60 is a lot, but you know, it's, it's not 600 where I would know I have to have this massive workforce. So just getting our heads of each department in place was a huge hurdle for us over the last 18 months, because once at least you have that first employee in each department ready to go, then you can start structuring out, well, what would it look like underneath them? Who do they need to have um, supporting them? And then in some cases, we'll have independent contractor labor supporting them until there's enough of a business case to bring that in-house. We've actually had a lot of luck transitioning independent contractors that we might find on Upwork um, or other methods um, to then giving them a full-time job offer. So when possible, we try to almost have a proof of concept um, with having a 1099 type person before we pull the trigger and bring them in-house. Um, as far as where to make that distinction, though, that's one of the you know hurdles as a business owner that I hadn't really had to grapple with before, like when to bring people onto your staff versus when to leave them um, you know, kind of outside. And I feel like it's going to be different for every business. Um, for us, we've said that when we have so much um, at stake on that, um, that part of our business, we feel the need to bring it in just to protect ourselves. And that's what happened with design, where we just felt like there wasn't enough control over the process. And it was, wasn't turning around as quickly as we wanted either was it hard to find the workforce i mean this has been a constant uh, theme for everybody that's in construction that's just whether the workforce is asking for too much they have too little skill was it difficult for you guys to find that workforce it's it's always difficult to always, find the right yeah? talent for okay. sure for sure but we got innovative you know a few folks we we found just looking around on LinkedIn um, and I wrote personal reach outs to people that I liked their profile. And we found some people that are amazing that joined us that way. Um, we've also done really well with referrals within our personal network. At least three of our folks are um, here because somebody else that they knew worked at our company or friend of a friend sort of a situation. So word of mouth has been really big for us. Um, and then on the other side, besides just finding your own talent, um, finding subcontractors, as of course you talk a lot about on this show, is, is always an uphill battle. <laughs> 
And that's going to evolve as your company size moves. It's going to be a different kind of employee or a different kind of subcontractor that thrives in different size of businesses. So that's something else we've had to deal with with our team. You know, when we started out, people were wearing a bunch of different hats. Um, and as we've gotten bigger, their roles have needed to shift. And we're kind of in this process of redefining and making sure that all the roles are quite clear. Uh, because until you have that clarity where a department head can really run with things on their own, you as a business owner are going to be stuck being that glue between departments, making sure everything still works together. So you have to give people clear lanes so they can take that and run with it on their own. It's refreshing, Whitney, to hear that um, you found a lot of them on LinkedIn because I've been telling everybody in trades, get on LinkedIn. Like LinkedIn yeah. is a valuable resource to network, not only just to get work, but just to network and to like, I mean, it's fun to be on the other social platforms, but LinkedIn, I find it's more of a serious, let's get down to business kind of mentality going on there. For sure. And again, like we mentioned, um, th there's there's really a, a lack of folks in the trades that are taking advantage. So you can easily stand out now. Um, and that's typically how we'll find, you know, we'll do our search for subcontractors too. Who, who shows up on Google when I just search for um, you know, plumbing general contractor, who's doing a good job of managing that? Because that already tells me a lot about how they're running their business. They're probably more tech forward. They're probably willing to work with us in a more digital way and, and worried about processes. So um, that's, you know, also just sending a signal about the kind of other companies you want to partner with. Well, I was, sorry, I forgot your partner's name, Mike. Was it Mike? No, Mike. Yeah, Mike. I'm just curious, Whitney, what color tool brand is Mike or what color tool brand are you? What color tool brand? Yeah. I mean, I'm not the one swinging a hammer. Thank goodness, because I would be hitting my thumb. <laughs> all all trade people hit their thumb. I don't even know how to answer your thumb. question. I, no, no, I'm just curious on what brand that they are always going. When you're when you're on the job site, what color are you mostly seeing on there? Like who's building or who's using what to build? Manny, I don't even go to job sites. This is the beauty <laughs> of what we're doing. Like I, I'm never there. <laughs> you're just on the paper side of business, which is really important totally side of the on business. The paper side. Really? Totally. What, I just go to job sites. If I'm going to go interview a homeowner about how it went, um, I think that's important for me and Mike. You know, he, he has the production side and I have the business side. And you can't remember what Mike uses? I don't know what Mike's using. Okay, I stumped you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but you know what? He wouldn't know what SEO management tools we're using. And True. that's the way it should be. True. So. No, and, that, and that's what I've told everybody that's been on the show or whenever we talk about it, that this side that you're handling is so critical, sometimes even more critical than swinging the hammer. Um, because if you don't have this side of the business properly set up, you're not going to have a business for long. It's just going to start to fall apart. Yeah. Or, t or, uh, Peter out on your growth. And I think that's where Mike was like, he kind of maxed out what he could do on his own running the business the way he had before. And he, to his credit, he knew that and he was willing to do some really crazy stuff with me. <laughs> um, I was constantly asking him, well, why do we do it that way? Does it have to be that way? I mean, he's getting really annoyed with me at some points, um, but it allowed us to push the limits of what we can do now. There's just no way he could have been doing, you know, uh, I don't know, 20, 10, 10 to 20 X, the number of builds he was doing in yeah. a year um, using his own, his old systems. So I'm curious about the future of Snap. Um, where are you guys thinking about, is it eventually going to get to a modular base or are we going to continue building this way with just a grant, a bigger workforce? Yeah. Oh man, this is a critical question. And we've explored panelization. Um, we've talked to lots of, lots of modular builders to kind of understand what that would look like. Um, and in the meantime, we've landed on exploring products like ready frame that is pre-cut lumber that's making us more efficient in the field. So we're sort of waiting to see how all that shakes out. I mean, there's been a lot of development investment in that space, but historically, 
um, those companies are hard to keep afloat. Um, and also what we found with the ADUs is that they're not able to offer the customization that a lot of our yeah. clients are demanding. It's very rare that you're going to have somebody just pick a plan off the shelf. They want to move a window location because it faces this weird part of their lawn, or they want to just move this wall. And mostly you can't accomplish that in a great way with modular, at least as it is now. Um, and also the modular companies in a way they're competing for those smaller ADUs, you know, the small one bedrooms and two bedrooms that we don't really build. Um, so for now, again, we're, we're sort of figuring out how, how the process looks with traditional construction, and we're continuing to stay open to other technologies, but are also waiting for them to sort of be proven out before we jump all in. I'm curious, would it, I mean, the primary reason for you guys to get into kind of panels or even modular is not really for efficiency because you guys are already working on efficiency quite well you're delivering a product a lot faster than what the market is already uh, delivering. So does it make sense for you guys to go down that path? Yeah, that's a good question. We actually had a, a build um, that's in progress right now. It's almost done. And the loan is trying to catch up to the build. Like it's a construction See, loan, but we're almost funny. done. So I we're know. proud of ourselves for beating the lender. <laughs> yeah, which is great. Um, yeah, but you know, people are looking for for less construction time on their lot, and that's definitely something that you know modular companies can offer, where they do reduce the time in the field. I mean, they're building it in the factory, and you're paying the um, deposit up front, so the whole payment structure looks very different. A lot of clients don't love that. Um, but you're right; we're kind of at this weird space where it's it's just short enough on the build time that people are still willing to work with it. But we know that at some point, it's not going to be efficient to bring your crews to each location. Like we can just see that, um, and so we're experimenting with some other models now, like almost running our own builds, more like a, a production environment in the field. So we have a project manager who's just going to be doing our site work across all of our jobs, a project manager who's just doing the shell across all of our jobs, and another project manager who's just doing the finished work. This is new for us, like the last three months. And so before that, we would have project managers based on geography, right? And you'd run the whole build. Yeah. Um, but what we were finding is that we were tearing our subcontractors in multiple directions. We had three PMs competing for um, the plumbing contractor. That wasn't a great relationship, right? So we tried to give our project managers more ownership over their part of it. And in doing that, I think then we're going to be able to experiment more. So that shell project management or that that shell part of our, our build is the part that you would be able to do in a factory. So now that we have site figured out, we've got finishes figured out, that would have to happen on site anyway. So we can now break out that middle part of our business and play with it a bit more. So a couple of things, Whitney, um, would you have you guys ever gone to the situation where you have got a client who wants your your unit, they are built, but they're also considering some construction work on the existing structure. Do you guys dive into that and partnering together? Or do you guys say, well, we really don't handle that. How do you guys handle that situation? Yeah, this was a tough one in the beginning. And we took several <laughs> jobs where we had to Since like you're already here, you might as well kind of add a second oh, story yeah. for us or a rear addition or whatever, which becomes a nightmare on the model that you guys have created, right? That's exactly right. And recognizing how much it comes with the process is, is huge because on paper, it sounds not bad. It's like, oh, well, you're here. It's just a bathroom model. Like, go do it. But anytime we're dealing with existing conditions, that's where we have to draw the line. Because we even tell folks, like, it's, I mean, it's not really different insurance, but we tell them it is because we don't even want to do it. Um, so if somebody comes to us with a, with a joint project, we typically will refer out the other part of it. We'll say, you know what? We don't do remodels. 
here's a guy. <laughs> and so we'll send them away for that part. It's a risk we're taking, but the bigger risk is in trying to take on work that we are not equipped to do. And we yes. simply are not um, staffed to do a remodel job, no matter how big or small, it's just not what we do. So we have had to turn away work or at least risk turning away work because of that. We do usually tell people, you know, it's smart to run it on two different permits anyway. Um, we're probably going to get the hit you built before your remodel is done. You know, those kinds of things, which is true. Um, but for us, it's just not worth the risk to the rest of our production. And we have to ask ourselves that all the time on like more complex builds. Maybe it's four ADUs in one big structure. We had this come up recently where somebody wanted to go three stories and, you know, on face, it, it was a lot of, it was all of our plans. It was our own plan stacked. But the second that you go to three stories instead of two, you're triggering all different kinds of uh, requirements and trades. We couldn't even have um, you know, our own design team do it. We actually don't have an architect in our staff. It's all draftsmen. You can't have um, a draftsman do a two-story plan. It has to be stamped by an architect. So even things like that, we're just going to blow up our model. And so it was a huge job. This would have been close to like a million dollar contract, but we had to say no because it just didn't fit in what we're specialized in. Trust me. And everyone is quickly learning. And I'm loving that the younger trades are learning the power of saying no. Oh, yes. It's we incredibly it important. I know. Yes. It's the joy of missing out. You know, once you do specialize, it feels good. You're like, I don't have to worry about that. It's not in my model. Um, I was going to ask you a couple of things. I was going to ask you, are you allowed in California to build rooftop decks? Can you take advantage of that tops roof area? Yes, this varies by city. Um, I would say about half in San Diego allow us to do it. Um, the city of San Diego itself allows us to. And typically you're just um, needing to stay in line with the height requirements for okay. the rest of the zone. Yeah, and that's the same thing here is that some dwellings have been allowed or proved that they can use that because that's basically going to be their only backyard space, so to speak, right? Living kind of outdoor space. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you is um, if you guys are ready, if someone's listening, because I do have a lot of listeners in Canada, if they wanted to take your model or make a snap Toronto, a snap Montreal, snap Vancouver. Is that a possibility in the near future? Is that what you guys are considering? I know we touched upon it briefly at the very beginning, but is that something to consider? I, we've definitely talked about it. Um, there's nothing formal in place yet, but I think it comes down to having someone who shares that vision and would be able to execute in their home market. And so much of that comes down to, again, having a pretty solid functioning business. Because if we're starting from square one with setting up a project management system and all that, um, it's not going to be a quick start. What would be a quick start is somebody who came to me and said, I already have this really you know, uh, well-oiled machine and I'm ready to take on a new type of business. I think that would work pretty well because a lot of what we've done as far as um, positioning SNAP and becoming a thought leader would be pretty copy paste. You know, we already have to do it for different cities within our area. Um, and so just building out the new set of tools and tweaking it to a geography would not be such a heavy lift. What would be a heavy lift is setting up, you know, a, a, a decent uh, mid-sized general contractor. <laughs> Okay, let me do a little bit of OBC talk, Ontario Building Code. Uh, we've been doing a lot of definitions. There's a lot of uh, wording, as I'm sure that you guys come across, that doesn't make any sense to us when we're building, but they've actually got some terminology. Absorption trench. It's an excavation in soil as part of a leaching bed where a distribution pipe or leaching chamber allows soil infiltration of the affluent. Um, accessible means blocked only by an access panel, door or similar structure, not cutting or breaking materials air admittance valve a one-way valve allowing air to enter the drainage system if the pressure within is less than the atmospheric pressure an air brake 
Uh, air brake is unobstructed vertical distance between an indirectly connected waste pipe and the rim of the discharge fixture. Uh, then you have an air gap, unobstructed vertical distance between a water supply outlet and the rim of the discharge fixture. Allowable bearing pressure, the max pressure allowed to a soil or rock by the foundation unit under expectation, expected conditions. And then allowable load, maximum load allowed to a foundation unit under expected conditions. Um, what else would I want to ask you, Whitney? You guys are building mostly slab on grade, no basements. No basements. Uh, mechanically speaking, is it still forced air for AC and heating? Uh, we're moving to many splits in some cases nice. based on, um, uh, efficiency and then also space constraints. So about half and a half right now. Okay. Um, are people, are you guys going with triple glaze or what's the, I, I'm not familiar with the area there. So I don't know if you're asking for triple glaze windows or single double. Like I think we're just a double, but again, okay. Manny, we're pushing the limits of where I am. This is why we have our home features on my website. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to remember this part, <laughs> but you know what I want you to ask me about? Ask me another bone to pick. <laughs> okay. Oh, not sorry, because you only shared one, so I told you you can throw as many bones as you like up in the air. What's another bone to pick about the construction industry? I would love like to talk about pricing and how historically it's very guarded and secretive, and you have to call to get a number. Consider putting your pricing out in the open. Um, all of our vertical build prices and site work costs, all of that's on our website. Um, and at first it felt really scary. Again, you know, historically Mike wouldn't have put out there. Um, but what we found is that it just simplifies the sales process from day one. You have people who've already self-selected because they kind of know where you're, you're thinking and ballpark pricing. Um, it's also allowed us to just come off as very transparent and like, we aren't trying to pull it over because you, you know, you met this criteria. So I'm going to charge you a ton. Like we can't even do that because <laughs> the pricing is right there on our website. Um, and it's also helped to sort of set a, a stake in the ground for this market. Um, we want our competitors to see our prices. Like, you know what, if you're going to try to undersell by 10%, more power to you. I already kind of know we've priced out where it needs to be in order to make money. And I doubt you're going to last that long. Um, so I just, it's, it's helped us, it's helped us just overcome a lot of the, um, constraints that come with trying to withhold that information longer. It's just like, again, kind of the joy of missing out on the projects in our ears, like joy of missing out on being secretive. Like it is so nice. Just have it all out in the open. It's, it simplifies everything. Everyone's paranoid. Like you, like you said, and I think the concern gets when it comes to pricing is that clients can actually take all your numbers and go to your competition and ask them to just do it for 10 points less. And then they'll go with your competition instead of that. We just hope the karma train comes along and then something yes. negative happens. Right. And that's it. We're not wishing ill will or anything like that, but maybe a really poorly scheduled construction process and it just gets dragged out for doing that instead of being respectful of one person that's willing to give up pricing and show pricing and being fair about it. Um, so I, I understand. I see both sides. I don't agree or disagree with either side. I just, I see the values and, and, uh, on both sides and, and I see where everyone's coming from at that point. I think it goes back to just vetting your clients because I'm still sure that you guys do that. You got to kind of interview your clients and see what they want and see if they're even in this landscape, so to speak. Uh, you know, yes. maybe they're not ready. Maybe they're six months away. Maybe they're 12 months away. I, I, I don't know. We don't know. So it's, it's still nice to have that conversation to get a sense of who the client really is, not the client that presents themselves because they are they're they're basically coming up at you at, at like Tinder or something like that. They're 
they're putting their best foot forward. They want to look proper. They want to possibly, we're going to have a child. We're going to get married. We're going to do this. We're going to do all these things, right? But let's talk about you guys right now. That's what I'm trying to get at. So that I think it's very important for yourselves and for any tradespeople in the business, building a business, just ask as many questions as possible and look for that gut feeling. That's all it is. And then go from there. Absolutely. I actually love your Tinder profile analogy. We're going to start using that. <laughs> right. That's what their Tinder profile said. But what are they going to be like in real life? Everyone a has a point. facade, right? Everyone, oh, yeah. like they come in and just saying this and saying that. And then they want, everybody wants the Pinterest in house. They want the bells and whistles, right? But they right. don't, nobody's actually educated them on what it costs. You guys are probably one of the, the small percentage, maybe 10, 15% of the market out there that actually goes, you want this? It costs this. Right. So then just kind of accept that number. Don't tell me that that number is incorrect. I'm the professional telling you that's the correct professional supply chain number. Yes. And also to your point, Manny, of like screening your clients in that transparency of the pricing, you're going to have, again, clients self-selecting. If you're getting somebody who does want to get the bare bones price, you know, nickel and dime, everything, you might not want to work with them anyway. So it's not such a bad thing for that person to perhaps look elsewhere. Um, so I think what it ends up getting us is the people who do value the predictability that we're going to offer. They maybe aren't looking for just the cheapest. They want this mix of, of, of value, um, which might mean a slightly higher price, better process faster higher quality so it's it's helping you in that screening process that you're talking about i i, I haven't been on the website I, well actually i haven't i've been on the website but i have been on your website in detail regarding i haven't gone through the process of actually putting an order in um but i'm curious about uh when you break down your pricing model i've done it with my own scope and other people that i know of in the industry we, we kind of treat it as 13 different key milestones in the construction process mm. and that's where the pricing model goes we've never gone to the detail of literally line by line of every single cost factor because that's just going to one confuse the client dramatically and then possibly plant some ignorant seed in their head that they can find somebody else that could get better nails which doesn't make any sense at that point um, so how detailed do you guys get in the pricing model Fantastic question. Um, we end up showing them vertical construction for the unit itself as a single number for exactly the reason you're talking about. If I start showing them stucco and framing and foundation and all that, it just, it's going to open up a bunch of questions and they might have a guy who could do that little part cheaper. And I don't want to start down that path. So you're totally right. Parts of it, we do choose to keep at a high level. Um, as far as what we do um, show them at a detail level, it's all the different uh, factors on their site and all the additional site work. That part we do want to put in line items for them so they can understand why they're not just getting that base price for the model. We want them to really understand all those intricacies. Also, it's harder to price shop those kinds of things. Like yes. it's hard for somebody to find a grader, right? It's hard for somebody to find a utility contractor. Like those are kind of opaque things to them anyway. So there's less risk than like if I put my cabinetry, cabinetry price out there. And so for that reason, um, when we're thinking about how to structure kind of the markup across all these, um, the client will ultimately see all of their finished material um, costs at a line level when they do their selections. So our markup on that is almost nothing. We bear, we, we just cover taxes and, and shipping <laughs> and we don't try to make a profit on those because we don't even want people to consider trying to go source their own lighting or trying to source their own cabinetry. It just gums up our works. So we try to also make the parts that are visible to the client um, very palatable on kind of an apples to apples basis when they can make those comparisons. Got it. Same Makes thing with like sense. design work. We try to make our design um, very competitive with like an architecture firm, if not cheaper. Cool. Any other bones that you want to talk about? 
Uh, I did have one more. What was my third phone? <laughs> oh, I know. Saying that's the way we've always done it. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a classic that one. Anymore. Yeah, that's a classic <laughs> one in construction. Yes, yes. Um, so Mike has gotten used to just never saying that. In fact, he asks now, why do we have to do it that way? So I see that's a huge one for us. I think it's just time that the industry starts evolving and starts learning new tricks and that's it. Just move on. Uh, yes. Start trying new ideas. That's it. For sure. Cool. Let me do a little bit of green book. This one's actually a test. Uh, see if you get oh, these no. ones. Uh, excavation finds. Uh, well, I mean, this is this is uh, our green book, our OSHA book here. Uh, employer does not mark gas, electrical, or other services before excavating. What do you think the fine associated with that is? Oh, I'm going to go with $2,500. $650. Oh, that'd be higher. Everybody's be always disaster. higher. Everybody's always higher. Employer marks yeah. gas, electrical, or other services inaccurately. How much do you think that is? Uh, so 500 little, bucks then 550 worker okay. worker marks gas electrical or other services inaccurately so that's first it was the employer now it's the worker if the worker does it incorrectly how much is that fine 250 dollars. wow you got that one <laughs> constructor <laughs> fails to uh, take precautions to prevent damage to the adjacent structures what do you think the damage is for that um, $5,000. $550. I'd be higher too. Worker affects excavation wall stability with machine. What do you think that fine is? $550. $250. Constructor does not keep support system design drawings at project. $100. $550. And the last one, employer does not notify the director before working on a tunnel shaft uh, caisson or cofferdam. Cofferdam? I don't know. Uh, well, it's got to be a reason why it's called that. Uh, what do you think the fine is for that? They never told Let's anybody. Let's go back to our 550. It's 550. So you got two out of the seven or eight right. <laughs> My takeaway on that is that they don't even need to find you much because you're going to have to pay for all the damages anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then the risk of potential loss of life or damage there oh, yeah. or injury, which is far greater. Uh, I've always said that these fines are too little. Uh, they should be greater because then we can avoid them all. Um, sure. I think we've covered so much, Whitney. I'm just trying to figure out if there's anything else that you want to share about SNAP. What do we want to share about snap i love the green Maybe. the green oh, pillows thanks. yeah we went all in on the green that was actually mike's color before but now it's like all i buy in my personal wardrobe as well <laughs> no i think that's actually a good thing to talk about um branding snap adu is sort of a mistake um we again were more construction at the beginning and we wanted to take that reputation and build on it. Cause Mike had great reviews online. Um, one, one late night though, I was just, you know, procrastinating on work by doing other work that didn't need to be done. It's my favorite thing to do. So I was thinking about names and, um, we were contemplating a bunch of different things and snap ADU, um, came to the forefront because, um, one, it was so obvious what we did, right. ADUs is in our name. So we already, you know, would indicate that to, to folks, but from an SEO perspective, back to the Google searching, um, having, your niche name um, in your company name is hugely advantaged. Um, so when we first started out, it was it is incorporated as Snap ADU, like all one word. Yep. We added the space though online so that it triggers for ADU every time somebody searches that. Um, so you know, we ideas that we jettisoned. It was like you know made up things like words that weren't even real. 
um, or just like more generic sounding construction names. So in the end, we went with SNAP because it was memorable. It's just a real word, SNAP, but with our primary focus of ADUs. Clever. It's very, very clever. It totally works. And that's how you guys get at the top of Google. Yeah, exactly. Without paying. <laughs> Without paying. Oh, man, we even, you know, every quarter we'll do an experiment with paid Google ads. And it's just always lackluster. Um, we'll spend, you know, three $3,000, let's say, and I'll end up getting maybe 30 leads. Um, but what I don't like about Google ads is that you're paying just for existing, um, I guess, in uh, intellectual property, you could say, to be put at the top of the search results, but you're not contributing anything. Versus if you write a new blog about something, you're going to get more traffic on an ongoing basis because that blog is going to keep getting hits and you're contributing to your industry. I feel like the advertising is just not our jam because it doesn't actually build anything for the broader space. So that's the other reason we don't love Google ads. How important is social media to you guys? Like you guys see it as a valuable tool or are you guys just kind of using it for the purpose of using it? Uh, I would say a little bit in the latter camp, um, mainly it just doesn't, people are not at the same part of their buyer journey when they're finding us on socials. That's usually the first time they're hearing about ADUs. So it's important from the perspective of we need to be there. If somebody's looking for us there, we can't just not show up, yeah. but people who are actually Googling like ADU builder or cost to build an ADU in San Diego, like those people are ready to go. So the kind of leads that we get from search is just a much more intentioned, ready to go type of a, a profile versus somebody who's just looking at it on social media almost for fun. So we do have to have that though, you know, also just to relate with our clients. A lot of folks will see their house on there and they'll, they'll comment in the notes and it's like, oh, I can't, I love how the build's going. And that's a great interaction place and you need to have it. But for us, we find the the search is just much more important. Cool. Um, are you ready for the 12 questions or you have anything yeah. else you want to share? You want to, let's tackle the 12 questions. Let's do it. I just want to let everybody know www.snapadu.com. Find her at Whitney at snapadu.com and on social snap.adu on a YouTube channel, Facebook and LinkedIn. What is your favorite construction word? Favorite construction word is approved. What is your least favorite construction word? For this one, I'm going to go with fascia. It affects me kind of like the word moist does. It just doesn't sound good. <laughs> Fit, but soft, it's fine. Soft, soft it's debatable. It's, it's debatable. Okay, it's in the same family. Yes. Uh, what turns you on in construction? Efficiency. What turns you off in construction? Uh, poor documentation. Uh, what's your favorite curse word? We haven't been profanity driven on this show, but it's up to you. <laughs> We're usually pirates, though, at Snap ADU. I'm, I'm really putting my best foot forward here and not, not cursing today. Um, I'm going to go with the phrase, well, I'll be go to hell. And my great-grandfather would say this. It was a combo when he would be just kind of shocked with some information. They're like, well, I'll be. Like, I, that's surprising. But then he'd also be denying it. Go to hell. And he'd just ram it all together. Well, I'll be go to hell. What is your favorite vehicle in the entire world? I love what I drive. It's a Buick Enclave with that third row for my kids and all their stuff. I love my Buick Enclave. What's your least favorite vehicle? I'm going to go with Teslas. I think they're more of a vanity play than anything else. There's and a lot of hate for California, the EVs lately on this show. I don't understand. I don't mind that they're EVs. I mind that people think they need to have them to be in the cool club. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's that world. Is it? Is it the 80s with VW? Is that what it is or something? I bet it is. Or yeah. Volvo. Was it Volvo in the 80s? I can't remember. Okay. Uh, what construction sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of sawing. It's very rhythmic and soothing. What's uh, What construction sound or noise do you hate? 
Um, the sound of anything breaking, the glass shattering, never good. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt one day? I get to try this sometimes. Um, video editing. It's so fun to me to stitch together a, a story and uh, with with visuals and, and audio makes the whole movement. I love it. What profession would you not like to do? Accounting. <laughs> But I'm you're on the paper side of the business. I know, but <laughs> finance is just, I don't know. It's, it's a different it's world. It's not tangible enough for me. I like the, the business itself. The, the numbers it. part of the accounting is just not my jam. Last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I would like for God to say, you're not going to believe this, but. <laughs> just but. That's all it is. Leave yeah, there's going to be something salacious coming after that. <laughs> Whitney, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time and sharing this. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to check it out and be curious about it because it's uh, definitely going to be the mainstay in construction. I think this is going to be a huge part of construction all over the world. I think so too. Yeah. Thanks, Manny. It was really great to be here. Thank you so much. Again, everybody, www.snapadu.com, Whitney at snapadu.com, and on social media, Instagram, snap.adu, and then uh, on YouTube and also Facebook and LinkedIn. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you, Angelina.